My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving. I remember just thinking like, this is extraordinary. Like you're trying to get this man elected president and you're having dinner with me. She always, I think, it just felt so strongly about making me feel like I came first. I'm Katie Hafner, and this is Our Mothers Ourselves. Valerie Jarrett is a woman who needs very little introduction. She's been a well-known power player all the way back to the 1980s, when she worked for Chicago Mayors Harold Washington and Richard Daly. Then she went on to hire a young woman named Michelle Robinson, and thus was born a long friendship and working relationship with the Obamas. She was a senior White House advisor in the Obama administration, and now she's president of the Obama Foundation. Valerie's daughter, Laura Jarrett, has also had a very impressive career. She was, like her mother, an attorney in Chicago, and now she's the anchor of Early Start on CNN. Laura is also mother to a two-year-old, which gives her mother, Valerie, a new role of grandmother, one that she's embraced wholeheartedly. A lot of things struck me when I spoke with Laura a couple of weeks ago, her energy, her total love for her mother. But what I found most striking was that as she was telling me her mother's story about things from years and years ago, she used the present tense. And it occurred to me that these are two women who live in and for the present. Laura Jarrett, thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your very interesting mother. I never miss an opportunity to talk about (laughs) Valerie Jarrett. (laughs) So um, one of the things that I like to do is ask people to give me one word to describe their mother. What would yours be? Uh, Unconditional. Nice. Meaning her love was unconditional. Her. Yeah. The way she, the way she lives her life, certainly the way that she parented me, um, certainly the way that she is with her friends, I think maybe because she's single, she has incredible female friendships that have lasted for, for decades. And she just, she, she just loves unconditionally. Wow. And that's, and especially for a parent, I mean, they have, it means that they have rules, right? She has lots of rules. She has lots of thoughts. She was very strict, but she once put it to me best one day after she had told me I couldn't do something. And I have a vivid memory of waking up late because I was in high school and she sat on the edge of my bed and she brought me cinnamon rolls like freshly baked from a bakery that's like amazing on the north side of Chicago. And we live on the south side. So it probably took her like 45 minutes there and back. And she brought me these cinnamon rolls and she said to me, I'm a package deal. I'm not going to let you go to these parties where the parents aren't there. But I'm also, unlike a lot of the parents of your friends, going to go to Ann Sather's and bring you these freaking cinnamon rolls. And I just thought it was such a like perfect encapsulation of who she is because she was really strict, especially in comparison 
to my friend's parents, but she also, you know, drove us all around and would come pick us up late at night and was always the one, like, no matter what had happened, you know, you could call. And uh, like, I can remember, you know, plenty of times where, (laughs) you know, a friend would call and they were in like a bad spot. Maybe they had gotten picked up by the police staying out too late and they would call me and say, like, can you come get us? And it's like somehow everyone just knew like she was the one to call, like if you were in really, really big trouble. Wow. (laughs) That's uh, okay. Well, let's let's dial back to (laughs) her. We'll get there. We'll get back to the the parenting. Um, So when she was little, she was born in. Um, she Iran? was born in Iran. She mm-hmm. had sort of a, a um, remarkable and unusual and adventurous childhood. My grandfather um, is is black, living in Chicago with my grandmother, and trying to figure out the best opportunity for somebody in like the late 1940s is not that easy in his position. And so he he and my grandmother grandmother cook up this plan to go to Iran because he was invited to start a a hospital there with someone else that that he had met in his travels. And because they were in their 20s and naive and adventurous, they were like, yep, let's just pick up everything and move to Iran. So they do that, much to their parents' chagrin. And my grandmother ends up getting pregnant there while they're while they're there setting up this hospital. And so my gra- my mom ends up being born there and they lived there for five years until they then moved to England and they spent a year in England. And then she moves back to the United States, back to the South Side where my grandmother grew up. Oh, wow. And did yeah. she, so to her, you know, when you're little and you're kind of squaring yourself with the way the rest of the world works. Yes. May- maybe when she was really tiny, she thought, oh, everybody does this. <laughs> I think she did. And then when she came back to Chicago, I think she would say she had a rude awakening because she had red hair and a sort of weird British accent from living in England for that year. And she didn't look like everybody else. And she 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 certainly didn't look like everybody else in our family. And she goes to a public school on the South Side and is bullied. And I think she felt like very much an outcast. As, she, as you say, she was trying to square herself in those years. Uh, and so I think it took some time for her to really find her footing in Chicago. Mm. And was she, did she have siblings? Nope. My, my grandparents didn't have any other children and I'm an only child. Mm. And so we, we have sort of this, I think, unique bond, both mm. being only children. And obviously I grew up super close to my grandparents because they only lived five minutes away. And your mom, now she married whom and how they meet? So he is the boy next door prototype, very handsome, successful, has everything going for him, but like woefully immature. As best as I can put it together now as an adult, that seems to be my assessment of it. And she had a crush on him since she was a young teenager. They sort of oh, so he really was the boy next door. Oh, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Like that, you know. It's you have to again, like go back to like, you know, the 1960s in in the South Side of Chicago, and everybody knows each other in in the middle class black community in in that area, and so she grew up knowing him. Grew up thinking he was super cute, and when she then um, moves back to Chicago um, after law school, they sort of reconnect and um, get married in pretty short order and get divorced in pretty short order. <laughs> but luckily you came along. 
<laughs> so luckily she she was with him long enough to get pregnant. Um, they divorce when I'm probably just shy of two. And then he passes away um, when I am eight years old. Wow, what a story. So do you have no memory of his being your dad or do you? I certainly have no memory of him um, being a father because that that was not a role that he played in my life. I have mm-hmm. very sort of snapshot recollections of different encounters with him, but you know so much of so much of your childhood, especially in, in situations like this is like you have to try to separate how much did you actually experience versus how much are you filling in what people have told you about things that you experienced? Because he was so not equipped to be a father, she was, and she was so protective of me and, and so, so determined to make sure that this man did not disappoint her baby girl. I, I did not see him that much because her position was if you cannot be an involved and reliable presence in her life, then like, let's just not even bother with this. And he was not interested in, in parenting and, and had sort of quickly moved on. He moved to a different state after they got divorced. So by the time he dies, when I'm eight, I, I basically have no relationship with him. And what, what was his name? And was his last name Jarrett? Yes. His last name is Jarrett. So she takes his name and interestingly keeps his name which I should now actually ask her about how she went about that because, you know, she was pretty young when they got married. So you never I, asked I, her why did you keep his name? Well, I've asked her why she took his name, and she said because at the time she wanted to have the same name as I did. I've never asked her why, like, we didn't just all change our name to Bowman. But in any event, she takes his name. His name was uh, William Robert Jarrett. And um, even after he marries somebody else, she still keeps his name. But in any event, she she's never actually going to change her name now because she is now Valerie Jarrett. So there's no way she's changing her name now. Um, and I ended up keeping my maiden name. So I'm obviously still Laura Jarrett. But I have never asked her why she didn't change her name back to her maiden name after they got divorced. I assume it's just because she still wanted the same name I had. So what did she, where'd she go to college and what'd she study? Uh, So she went to Stanford. She majors in psychology, loves California, but doesn't quite know what she wants to do with her life after college. And so ends up going to law school at the University of Michigan and then immediately goes back to Chicago after that. Oh, wow. And that's when she started working in the mayor's office. Is that right? No, you know, she went to a law firm, actually a couple different law firms, I think at least two. And so she practices law for a long time before she ends up going to City Hall and is miserable and then sort of has her epiphany that she needs to do more with her life after she gets divorced and has me and feeling unmoored and and miserable at, at her nice, cushy law firm job. And so then she decides to go work for Mayor Harold Washington and thought that that would be a good use of her time and public service. And she had a friend who was who was in public service and sort of convinced her that that would be a life worth living. And then Harold Washington promptly dies. And then she ends up staying at City Hall and working for Mayor Daley in the planning commission. And, and she had worked a lot on real estate at her law firm. And so that was a natural fit for her. You know, what what would we do without if people didn't get sick of their cushy (laughs) law firm? Well, it's it's so funny because I end up having a very similar track, at least in our early 20s. 
as she does, even though having listened to her talk about how much she hated those law firms, basically my entire life, I end up doing the exact same thing until I decide I've had enough of my cushy life. Okay, so she's there in Daly's office, and then what happened? She's there in Daly's office working, you know, as hard as you can imagine, and trying to trying to be a single mom and you know she she talks about in her book all of these sort of classic single mom moments where you know there's like a halloween parade at my school when i'm in lower school and she's in some important meeting with mayor daly and she and another friend who had a son my age in the same school are looking at their watches you know like anxiously trying to figure out whether they can make it back down to the south side in time for the halloween parade in time for us to come out and and he's looking at them like clearly figuring out that they're distracted and he's like Mayor Daly is looking at them like, what is the problem? Like, are you guys like, do you want to be here or not? And they're like, sorry, sir, the Halloween parade starts in 15 minutes. And so she has all of these sort of classic moments like that where she's feeling the tug of, of, you know, trying to be a present mother to me, but also, you know, she, she enjoys her work and it's a great thing that she enjoys her work. And, and I now, of course, as an adult appreciate sort of that push and pull yeah. and all of that tension right. and guilt. Right. But at the time, I was oblivious. At well, the time, it's like, oh, mom will be there for the Halloween parade? Great. No appreciation well, of all the things that she would have to do to get there. Okay, I agree with you, but I do think that in aggregate, the kid remembers. Like when I was a, a reporter at the New York Times, and I loved my editor, and we were trying to get something done really quickly, and I said, I there's a field trip <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have to go. And I said, but I know I can't go because we have to get this story in. Yeah. And he said the best thing. He said, Katie, in five years, what are you, you going to remember? remember? Yeah. Are yeah. you going to remember that the story took a, an extra eight hours? Or are you going to remember that you went on Zoe's field trip? And he said, go on the field trip. Yeah, and it's, I, it's such a it's such a blessing to have somebody and, with that perspective because yeah. I'm not sure everybody every editor would have that perspective. No, oh my gosh, no, no, no. He was truly exceptional. So one thing I was reading, uh, I forget which interview it was. I love this quote from her so much, where she said that when she came home at the end of the day, I'm kind of getting chills just reading it. She said, "I'd turn the lock in the key." And out of nowhere, wherever you were in the house, you, <laughs> I know you would appear and whatever was happening before just faded away. It's amazing, right? And she certainly, certainly growing up made me feel that way. I, if she had had a bad day, it would have been news to me because she certainly never showed it. And I don't know whether that's generational or whether that's just her personality, but I, I can't even remember ever seeing her cry growing up, which is sort of amazing. Like given what a like crazy ass hard, like <laughs> set of jobs she had, I never saw her lose her temper. I never saw her lose her cool. I certainly saw that, you know, there were frustrations, but I, she always somehow figured out when she opened that door, how to leave work where work belonged. I, I guess it was the same interview where I read that you guys had rituals together, like always dinner together. 
and then this thing I love so much that you watched Seinfeld together. Is that right? So a lot of times, especially by high school, when I was like halfway competent at cooking, she would say, you know, I'm going to be home at, let's call it 6, 630. Either you order out dinner or you can cook something or you can warm up something that I made, you know, two nights ago. And I would sort of like get things going and then she would walk in the door and sort of finish it off. And then we would always sit in front of the TV, at least in high school, not earlier on, but in high school, we would sit in front of the TV for like 30 or 40 minutes, eat dinner, laugh at Seinfeld. And then I would go back to my room and do my homework. She would go probably like check in with work. And then we would come back together again for the 10 o'clock news. (laughs) (laughs) Seinfeld, the news, Seinfeld, the news. (laughs) Yes. And then the news, we watch the local news together at 10 o'clock, half like her probably half asleep, me like plotting about something that I wanted to ask her. So it's like, I would usually, she would always say that I would drop on her, like whatever my outrageous ask of the weekend was. Right. So like, I want to go to this party. I'd always ask her in that hour, you know, or half an hour for the 10 o'clock news. And, and I promised her I wasn't doing it deliberately. It wasn't like I was trying to sabotage like her parenting by asking her when her reserves were down and tired. <laughs> it would just happen to be on my mind at 10 o'clock. Um, so do but you yeah. have a, I have, so, um, when I met my husband who I'm married to now, um, <laughs> Uh, I had never seen a Seinfeld uh, at all when uh, he met me. And he's like, he thinks Seinfeld is like the Talmud. I mean, to him, yes. yeah, yeah. All, all truth lies in Seinfeld. Yes. And so, so he should have walked out of that first date then and there. But I now we just, you know, we make Seinfeld references all the time. Did you have a favorite episode or do you have a favorite reference that you make? Or do you like tap your head like Elaine when... When you want to get out of a party, or that's so funny. I don't. I don't feel like I even. I don't feel like we had a lot of references. I feel like it was almost like we were using it just to like decompress and be able to to watch something that was like just totally like foreign and removed from our lives, right? <laughs> like it, it, I don't. I don't. I can't even think of what my favorite episode would be. I'm sure I have one. So when did you? Be, how old were you? Do you think? when you became aware that your mom was running in pretty rarefied circles? That's a great question. You know, I would say from an early age, I understood that she had a different job than other parents um, of friends of mine, but I wouldn't have described it as rarefied. I would have described it as like, hard as hell and like demanding. I can, I can definitely remember in high school, she had taken a job as the chairman of the board of the Chicago Transit Authority on top of what she was also doing in the private sector in real estate. And they had like cut service on one of the lines. And so a bunch of protesters showed up at our home and I can remember like saying to her, like, what, what are we, what are you doing this for? Like, is it really like worth being on the board of the transit authority to have people in front of our home about like you cutting their service? <laughs> like, this just doesn't seem like a way to live. Um, and, and I don't remember her response to me um, other than what she would normally say. Her general position was um, leadership requires making the tough choices that, that 
other people not, might not be able to make. And good leaders stick it through even even when things get hard and, and you have protesters in front of your home. That's what it means to, to be a good leader is that you have to swallow a certain amount of pain. And I think she actually still thinks that. But, you know, she, she took me to a lot of things. You know, she took me to stuff like she had community meetings when she was at the city and she would go to those meetings um, with residents of public housing and they would be screaming at her about decisions that the mayor had made when it came to, to public housing in the city. And she would just sit there and she would take it. And we would have, you know, like a security escort us to the, our car at night. And I, again, would be like, what are we doing? Is this safe? What's like, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> like, why are we doing this? Is this worth it? And she would always, you know, sort of just have a stiff upper lip about it. And it's, it's so funny because I, you know, I like, I've asked her about those, those instances since I've been an adult about, you know, how, how hard it was to be screamed at in front of your young child about something that you thought you were doing the right thing at work. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I kind of see parenting, uh, the parent child relationship as just these scales, you know, one higher than yet two scales balancing. And, you know, you start out where the parent is very, very, very much the higher scale and then gradually there's some spot leveling (laughs) say again i said leveling (laughs) a leveling yeah exactly so there they are together the scales and then of course we parents just become kind of the infants again (laughs) yes sadly even though no one prepares you for that part of it right But when, how old were you when you realized that you and she were basically on equal footing? I still don't think we're on equal footing. Mm-hmm. I grew up hearing my entire life, I am not your friend. <laughs> like, really? So, yes. But she, I, she I guess- has a very like old school mentality about like children and and the child parent relationship even to this day if i try to lecture her about something she will say like i am the parent <laughs> really still so no so yes now she's so much more open and forthcoming with me and vulnerable with me than she ever would have been as a child and she certainly um would say to me now that she she does consider us friends, but she would not say that we are on e- at all equal levels. And I wouldn't even say that we're on equal playing fields whatsoever. That's pretty traditional. I yes. I, w- I think, I think she, she values using me as a sounding board. At least I hope she does now. And that she sees me as, um, as a useful sounding board because I know her better than anybody else. And so I think oftentimes she comes to me when she knows what the right answer is and she just needs somebody to tell her what her gut wants to already do, but she just hasn't quite gotten there yet. She says that she used to use her dad like that too. And her dad sadly passed away a couple of years ago. And I so I sort of sometimes think I've now turned into that for her because she would always go to her dad with hard questions and things that she was struggling with at work and moral quandaries. And her dad would always say to her, if you're coming to me to ask me that, you already know what the right answer is. And I, I think lots of times with with me, she'll come to me with something that's, you know, a, a sticky situation and I can usually hash it out with her in about five seconds and and know exactly where she's going with this. 
And so I, I, you know, she, we do have those kind of frank and open and, and wonderful conversations now, but we're still not on the same playing field. <laughs> but, you know, so when my daughter, you know, became an adult, I, she started saying stuff that I didn't know. I mean, she just had this body of knowledge that I hadn't taught her. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's going to be a weird experience as a parent. I, I yeah. already feel that way about my son is, you know, when he really? does something or something, when he's, he just turned two and, you know, at that age, you, you, you're so used to seeing your baby as just an extension of yourself until they start to take on their own personality and life and friendships and, you know, all the things that you wish for them. But even now, you know, if I'm not around and he does something and I, he I hear, you know, from either another parent or our nanny about something he did and it did something he did. And it just sounds like so, you know, like out of this world, not something I would have done. I still find it so weird because I think of him as just an extension of myself. Where in reality, he is his own person and he's going to learn things that have no basis in anything that I've taught him. And so I can imagine as a parent, you know, that it would be such a weird experience to have your child just spout, spouting off about something that you weren't at all a part of. I know. Exactly. And and they And they stop. I hate to break this to you, but they stop asking you these questions in wonder and you feel omnipotent and omniscient. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, well, let me tell you. Yes. <laughs> so, so how did watching your mother be a mother influence the kind of mother you are now? So I, I think she was so selfless. And again, it, it's hard to know and separate out, is that just who she is as a person? Is that sort of a byproduct of the fact that she was a single mom and had a lot of feelings about making sure that I didn't feel somehow like not, that I didn't feel like I was, I was missing something by the fact that she was a single mom. I think she had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of feeling towards that and, and making sure that I was shored up emotionally on that. And so I think the, the selflessness in the parenting and sort of keeping in mind the long view. She's, she's so good at sort of pulling back when things are hard and saying, it's not always going to be this way. And I can remember so many times, and especially those first three months with James, when I was just miserable and she would just show up at my door and say like, isn't it just wonderful? You have a baby. And I would look at her like, are you crazy? This is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I hate this. <laughs> and, she would, and she would have such a chipper attitude and it would sort of drive me crazy sometimes. But then now I look back on it and it's, it's just like, so her, because she's thinking about the fact that like, they're only going to be three months for a hot second. And so, you know, she's enjoying this yummy baby <laughs> because she knows that it's fleeting. Whereas I'm just like miserable, <laughs> just like yeah. can't wait for him not to be three months old anymore. Um, well, also, and so I think, I think keeping the long view, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. And, and you, you must be awestruck by the fact that she did this by herself. I'm consistent. I'm consistently and just profoundly amazed that she did this by herself. I, I, you know, <laughs> it's the smallest things and it's the biggest things. It's the smallest things down to, um, you know, bathing a baby when they're really little. Right. And I remember there was a time where James was just screaming and it's like four hands, me and my husband on deck 
trying to get him through this bath in one piece so that he doesn't knock his head on the on on the tub and hurt himself. And she was she was in the apartment in the bathroom with us while we're bathing him. And I turned to her and I said, how did you do this by yourself? And she laughed. But I'm sure she could have cried also thinking about all those times she had to bathe me by herself because, you know, it, I now have such a such a um, such a deeper appreciation. It wasn't that I didn't know it and it wasn't that I didn't appreciate it before I had a baby, but it, I certainly see it in such a different light. And I I just now think about how tired she must have been, just like how just bone tired she must have been trying to deal with me on her own. Even though we had my grandparents, obviously, I said they were, you know, five minutes away and they were a huge presence in my life. But at the end of the day, she was the sole parent my entire life. Did she date? Very rarely. I can remember a handful of people, but she was so protective of making sure that, you know, some some dude wasn't going to come in and mess things up with us because we we had such a you know a special relationship and special bond and I think she was super protective of me and certainly didn't want she was just she didn't want anyone to disappoint me I really think that that was a big driver for her because of sort of the initial dust up with my dad and so I think she was very protective and didn't want to have you know sort of uh, an unnecessary disappointment, I think would have been her view. And so she had a, you know, a couple people that I can remember, but nothing of, nothing of any substance and certainly, you know, no second marriages. What a selfless parent, truly. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hard though now being where I am because I, I wish for her to have companionship at this stage in life, you know, she's, she's now at the point where she's out of the white house. She can enjoy her life. She doesn't have to have a nine to five day job anymore. She doesn't have to worry about me. She can just enjoy being a grandparent and travel and do whatever she wanted if it wasn't for coronavirus. And so I, I, I want her to, you know, have that companionship, but you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, she's lucky. She has amazing, amazing female friendships that she has, forged over, you know, decades and, and a really tight bond with them. And I'm glad that she has that, um, you know, that love in her life. And was she close to your grandmother? Very close. So, yeah. So, yeah. So my, you know, my mom is an only child too. And I think especially once she got divorced, my grandmother felt very protective of her and wanted her to feel like she wasn't doing this on her own. And so, she really sort of, you know, swooped in and and tried to do whatever she could. My grandfather took me to school every day of my life so that my mom wouldn't have to worry about that. And I think they wanted to try to, you know, figure out ways to take things off her plate where they could. And, you know, there's only so much they can do. She's still the parent. But I recently heard her say um, my grandmother offered to my mom to have um, my mom and I move in with them once she got divorced. And my mom said no. Because if that happens, you'll end up being the parent to Laura and I'll end up being the sister. <laughs> oh, so wow. She, she, op- was, she, was, she opted not to do that. <laughs> that's interesting that she saw it that way. I yeah. know. I was the first time I had heard her say that. I thought that yeah. was fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. So what is she? what's she up to now? My grandmother is 92 years old, lives on the south side of Chicago in the same house, is still working, is just a force of nature herself, and is, 
you know, just like, uh, uh, just so full of life and stories. And she hosts Sunday dinner at her house every single week. She is just like the classic mama bear matriarch of the family. And, you know, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every Easter, every birthday, every, everything is at my grandmother's house. And how about your mom? What's she up to? So my mom has, has a, a great sort of, um, do what she wants to do stage of her life. Since leaving the White House, she joined a bunch of corporate boards. She stays in, involved with a bunch of other civic engagements that she felt were important to her. Um, after leaving the White House, she, she does a lot of work on gender equity and pay equity, which is something that's close to her heart for obvious reasons. Um, but she's also done a lot on voting rights. She's, she's very, um, worried and aggressive about the state of democracy in America. Mm. Gee, and I wonder doing, why. <laughs> and I wonder why it has been doing a fair amount on that. And then she also is helping out with the Obama Foundation. And so she's helping her friend fundraise for his foundation and museum and library and being a grandmother. And so thankfully, um, she got an apartment here in New York. And so when she's in town, you know, we, we see her a couple times a week. James, my son, is in love with her, and I think she enjoys being a grandparent without having to worry about being right. a parent. <laughs> right. My mother-in-law said to me once, Katie, my job is, she had four boys, and she said, you know, you are the parent and I spoil her. <laughs> yes. And she, my mom very much feels that way really? with James, with James. She's not, uh, she's not interested in setting limits and boundaries, except when, you know, he's about to like put his hand on the stove, then she mm -hmm. will step in. But other than that, yeah. she pretty much does whatever he wants. Very well. That's her job. I think that's just totally right. Yeah. So, um, just before we go, when I asked you the one word that you would use to describe her, I wanted to ask you, what is the one thing you would tell her you were most grateful for? It's <sighs> such a hard one. I guess I would say the thing I'm most grateful for her was making me always feel like I mattered. She, she really figured out from an early age and through now, um, to no matter what she had going on, make me feel like I was her first priority, which again, now as an adult, I see how hard that is to do. Um, you know, she had a thing about birthdays and always being with me on my birthday, no matter where she was or what she had going on at work. And I can remember in 2008, and she's like in the thick of the Obama campaign and I'm in law school and my birthday is in, in late October, right? So she's flying to Massachusetts in late October when she probably should be in, I don't know, Ohio. Uh, but she flew to, she flew up to law school to have dinner with me on my birthday on October 29th. Um, and I remember just thinking like, this is extraordinary. Like you're trying to get this man elected president and you're having dinner with me. Um, and she just, she always, I think it just felt so strongly about making me feel like I came first. Well, Laura Jarrett, I, w I would like to thank you so much for coming on. This has been just so much fun. and Yes, this is such a treat. I know, I you, as you can tell, I could talk about my mom for <laughs> forever. <laughs> That's it this week for our mothers ourselves. 
Our theme music is composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist in residence. The show's producer is Claire Tragesser. Please visit us at ourmothersourselves.com and contribute the one word that best describes your mother to our mother word cloud. That's ourmothersourselves.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios in San Francisco. And I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Stay safe, everyone. And if you haven't already, do get vaccinated. I know.